0: Why don't you turn in your Bibles? We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 5, and um, we're going to pick up where we left off in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read to you from verse 20, just to. Since these two sections really dovetail, we're going to read down to verse 26. Matthew 5, verse 20. It's on page 1427 in the Brown Bibles. I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, when we're reading this, I think we can well imagine that some of the things that Jesus is saying would have had slightly more of a shock value um, for his original hearers. And in some ways, at first blush, it seems that the world into which he was speaking, the crowds that were gathered in front of him, was a vastly different world um, to 21st century London, 21st century Waterloo, on, on so many levels. Um, for one thing, they were profoundly religious, and uh, you, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't imagine anybody in that crowd um, owning up to being an irreligious person. Even the worst people in society would have considered themselves at some level to have been religious. And it seems to me that we live in one of the most secular um, nations on, on the planet. Certainly voluntarily secular because it's been um, a move that's happened gradually. And With the exception of someone like France, and we welcome whoever's French here today. <laughs> um, there is, there's few places on earth that are less genuinely religious than, than Western Europe these days. And, and Britain is one of those places, right? And... Uh, Another thing is that they were profoundly conscious that they were living under God's law. So they had this awareness that God had spoken, that he'd set a certain pattern for living, and they felt utterly bound and compelled to live under that law. Whereas today, we live in a society which is, um, in a way, lawless. Now, I don't, I don't think that's actually the truth of the matter, but there is, there is a sense in which, Everything about right and wrong is up for grabs today, isn't it? Um, I don't know if any of you saw the amazing article that was written by Matthew Parris, who's a, a gay atheist journalist who wrote in Spectator just this last week, saying, I wish that some Christian of stature in Ireland had stood up and opposed um, the, the, uh, the gay marriage bill that has just gone through. For the reason that he said, like, we've lost any sense of um, any, any sort of, People with anything other than just putting their finger in the wind to find out what's happening in society. And he was just commenting on the fact that we've moved from some moral absolutes to moral relativists in, in our society at large. And it is so profoundly true that people tend to think of morality as something just up for grabs. So that's another difference with the world that Jesus spoke into. They were religious. They were law keepers. That's how they understood themselves. Another thing is that they, were, they feared judgment. So, in light of all these things, they had an awareness that one day, as individuals and also as a nation, that they would face God. And that in having to face God, they would have to give an account for their life. And that God is very much interested in the details of their lives. So, they they lived under that sense of knowing that their, their life would be scrutinized, was being scrutinized even constantly. And I think few people today really want to acknowledge anything like um, any, any genuine thought through um, idea that God might be a judge over our lives. Now, that's the kind of first blush of comparison with what Jesus is speaking into then and what we, we are facing today. But I, I actually think that our worlds are not as far apart as we might originally think. For one thing, I think it's obvious that we have this natural law written on our hearts. That fight as we do to defy what we think is is is, is right and wrong as being handed to us as being through traditions. We all do it from a sense of 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 uh, sort of taking the moral high ground. There's not a person who doesn't think that their view of right and wrong isn't the right view of right and wrong. We're all kind of living under some consciousness of being under some code, even the worst of us. And we also believe in some kind of cosmic justice. It always surprises me that in in throwing out the idea of God as this eternal, unchanging, personal judge, most people have accepted in its place an idea of just what's, what goes around, comes around, and this kind of impersonal karma. So I, it's, you don't have to go very long in talking to friends who, who, aren't, who don't believe in any God before they'll talk about, well, what did I do to deserve this? Or they talk about um, karma and paying off your karma. And it's pretty common language, isn't it? So it seems to me that people are actually a little bit closer to the world in which Jesus spoke than, than at first we realize. That we are aware of right and wrong, and that we are aware of some some kind of justice at work in the universe, even if we don't want to call it God. And another thing then, and this is the crucial thing, is that just as the people Jesus was speaking to would have felt a certain way, so also today, it seems that most people that we meet think that fundamentally they're good people. So while we've been separated by millennia, by culture, by religion, by all these things that make first century Jews different to 21st century Londoners, actually, the basic impulses of the human heart don't change all that much. Most people, in their own assessment, look at their own lives and think, I'm okay. Most people think that they're healthy spiritually to a certain degree. And so the words that Jesus begins to speak to people here have in many ways the exact same resonance now as they did then. And they couldn't be more important for us to understand and to hear and to take on board and even to speak into the world in which we live, right? Because I think first of all we've got to get this point in mind. That we are all... Basically, self-justifying legalists. Throughout this section of the Sermon on the Mount, what's Jesus doing? He's wanting to undercut the foundation on which people build their life, the the religious, ethical foundation on which they build their life and and establish themselves as righteous. As justified. He's not in any way wanting to cut down or criticize the law of God. In fact, that was what we were looking at last week. He absolutely upholds it and says this is unchanging and it all must be fulfilled. And rather, what he's doing is he's showing what it is that the human heart, what your heart does with God's law. And I think that this, these are universal principles tendencies that are at work in the human heart. Let me just sort of list some of the things that came to my mind. One of them is this, that we all naturally have a tendency to read laws negatively rather than positively. So when we think about what is right and wrong, we tend to think in the negative. So we read a a commandment like do not murder, which is the example we're looking at today, and you read it in the negative. Obviously it's, it's something that you should refrain from. And evidently, Morality can't just be reduced to negatives. So when a lot of people say that the code by which they live is do no harm, right? do no harm to others. But just if you avoid doing harm to other people, that doesn't make you a righteous person. It doesn't make you a good person or a moral person, does it? I, I think you can, you can drift through life um, profoundly immoral just by a code like that, do no harm. So we tend to do that with laws. We tend to reduce them just to the negatives and it allows us to sort of escape the full force of what they're about. Another thing we do is we try, to, we, try to find, we try to find ways around laws. Now, this is always in the news these days because we have all these laws in our country about paying tax. And you know what Jesus said about paying tax? He says you've got to do it. And yet it is common practice. In fact, it's normal to find ways to avoid paying tax. Now, I'm told that there's two ways you can do it. There's tax avoidance and tax evasion. One of them is legal, the other is illegal. But, but what makes the difference between them is just an arbitrary decision that some parliaments made at some point about what is a legal way of avoiding tax and what is an illegal way of avoiding tax. And the, and the reality is that so often it's always just an effort to avoid to pe- giving money away that rightly ought to be given away. Yeah? So we are, by nature, we tend to try and circumvent, find ways around moral laws, and obviously tax paying is not on the same level as what we're talking about today, but it's pretty important, and therefore fill in your tax returns, pay, whatever. But also, I, you know, think of another example of this. We, dieting is a great example. I'm, I'm not saying this is a moral issue, but I just want you to understand that this is the principle. Um, I, had a, I had a buddy who, um, a good friend of mine, who was really rather overweight, and he was trying to stick to a diet plan that um, restricted him to a certain number of calories per day. And I'm not talking about myself, guys, just in case. This is not hypothetical. <laughs> he was trying to stick to a diet plan that restricted him to a certain number of calories a day. And he came to me one day and he was elated because he'd been really miserable for a couple of weeks. He was really excited and he said to me, Andrew, Andrew, I, I just realized that I can have an extra 300 calories a day. And he said, This is huge. And I was thinking, no, you're huge. <laughs> the, see the, the issue was that he, he, he knew what he had to do to lose weight, but he was finding everything, every way which way he could to try and skip around the rules that he'd actually self-imposed. He, he'd set the rules up himself, and now he was trying to find a way around them. Now, isn't that the way you and I always deal with, with, our, with the laws that we even set on ourselves, never mind the ones that are, are put upon us? Another thing we do is that we we tiptoe to the edge of what's permissible. So we tend to see a law as a line, like a fence on a cliff. And you think, well, everything within that fence is permissible. So I might as well get as close as I can and just peer over the edge and just see what lies over the precipice of this 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 law, this this rule, this 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 boundary between right and wrong. I think always think one of the the most obvious examples of this is that Whenever Christians who, who really have very a very specific, you know very clear sense of um, of what God's intention is for relationships when they start going out, uh, you know you lose count of the number of times that guys and girls in relationships who are not yet engaged and definitely who are not yet married will ask you, Pastor, well they never actually call me Pastor, but they say Andrew, how far is too far? And, you know, I always think it's, it's exactly the wrong question to be asking. And, and it's just indicative of just what our hearts tend to do with laws. We tend to see the, the fence and we run up to it and then peer over the edge and just think, how far is too far? How much can I push this in terms of sexual intimacy, arousal, the erotic side of relationships? But, but it's, all it's doing is showing what we do with all the laws that, that, that are put upon us. It's why law is impotent. We do that with it. Another thing we do is we externalize laws. We externalize rules. We make them about our conduct rather than about our heart. So you think about, um, you know, just to use an illustration of what I'm talking about here, you know, how many of you, if you work on a computer, have um, been browsing on Facebook and then when your boss comes behind you, quickly minimize the browser. You know, and the, the reason we do it is because we want to present an outward appearance of obedience and hardworking, um, sort of, you know, an effort to sort of please the boss and whatever. And it's just what the Bible calls eye service. But in reality, the, the heart's not necessarily engaged. Or worse still, you may even be deliberately being lazy or shirking off from your work. We do it in all kinds of ways. We, we, you know, how many of us will turn up to worship on Sunday? And We've not really spoken to God at all in the week, let alone sincerely worshipped him in a heartfelt way. And yet it's because it's our custom, and I'm not wanting to discourage you from coming ever. I think you always should come, and I think you always should engage with God in worship. But, but it, it's indicative, isn't it, of, of our tendency to want to just go through the motions and do the outer thing without necessarily our hearts really being in it. And lastly, another thing we do is that we can just deny the rules altogether. Um, Just say, look, this isn't isn't, um, from God. This isn't God's will. Now, why? I think it's all down to this. That as people made in the image of God but coming from the line of Adam... We all want the law to conform to us rather than us conforming to the law. And it is the same basic impulse that runs through every human heart. The desire to self-justify. That is the disease of the human heart. To say, I am right. Whatever I am, that is what rightness is. And so here, what Jesus is doing, as he begins to expound the Old Testament laws that he loves so much, is that he is smashing that self-righteousness. That he is giving a bloody nose to our efforts to self-justify. And I, I love that he jumps right in with murder. Because it seems to me, that most people, just your average guy on the street, if you ask him, do you think you're a good person, do you think you'll go to heaven, will say, yeah, I'm good, I've never killed anybody. (laughs) You know, I've heard that so many times. It's not like I've ever killed anybody. We tend to think about evil people as people who are kind of just slightly off the edge of insanity and capable of heinous acts, and everyone else is just in the mushy middle. And I'm one of those people, and I'm bang in the middle. I'm just average, I'm okay, I'm good. I love the fact that Jesus hits there first of all and jumps right in. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder or you'll be liable to judgment. But I say to you, and he begins to turn it around. Now let's just think about what he means here. First of all, it's not this. It's not that being angry or insulting is exactly the same thing as murder. If we, if we really thought that and took that away from what Jesus says here, then as Christians, it would be our moral duty to campaign that every time someone gets angry, they should be locked away for 25 years in prison. And every time someone issues an insult, then, then, then we ought to call the police. Call 999. You call me stupid. I'm going to call the police and get you arrested. But the Bible allows for gradations in, in sinfulness. That while at the root of all sin is, is, is the disease called sin, sins in themselves, the fruit of the disease, are different in severity and wickedness. Also, the consequences of sin differ, don't they? So, a sin like murder has far worse consequences than shoplifting. We also recognize when, in the Bible that the punishments differ. That even in the in the law, God said that there are certain things which are worthy of of, of the worst kind of punishment, excommunication, or even capital punishment, and there are things which may be less so. It's all sin, but there are these gradations. Okay, so he's not saying that being angry and insulting people are 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 the same as murder exactly, and that you know therefore we ought to react in the same way. Nor is he saying that all anger and insults are always Sinful. I know that because Jesus himself got angry. How many of you have ever chased people with a whip with the intent to harm? <laughs> Jesus did that. He did it on more than one occasion. He also, I was listening to some of Matthew's gospel to this day, and it strikes you when you hear it more than when you read it. And, uh, you know, how he would just call these guys, you brood of vipers. You know, i would never called somebody a a snake or a serpent. Now, admittedly, and and he also called them fools, which is the very word that he uses here. He says, uh, whoever um, says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, in Matthew 23, Jesus turns to the Pharisees and scribes and says, you fools, you blind guides. He uses the exact same language. Now, you could just say, well, that's Jesus. We're not Jesus. He's allowed to get angry because he's righteous. He's allowed to... Um, to insult people if he wants because he is, he's perfect, he's righteous, there's no one like him. But even Jesus' own followers and his greatest apostles in the scriptures endorse that there's a place and a time for anger and for even a carefully placed insult. In, in Ephesians 4, um, Paul says this, he says, Be angry and do not sin. It's almost a permission. He says there are occasions, there are times when it's perfectly right to be angry with another person. But don't let that anger become sin. Two times in his letters he writes, and it's there written in black and white for all history. He calls the churches that he's writing to fools. So he could never even try and deny that he'd done it. It's written down. It's like when your emails get read back to you and they're rude and insulting. I never do that. <laughs> the Bible says that, also that all atheists are fools. And who am I to argue with that? So there are obviously, there are obviously times and places when it's perfectly right to be angry. It's perfectly right to, to land a well-placed insult. Um, and it, it can be something sweet, And delicious in that. But let's not get too far down that road. Rather, what Jesus is doing here is he's showing that while the fruit may differ in how your heart is expressing things, the root is the same. So in one instance, the fruit might be a deliberate attempt to kill someone, which I trust you guys are not regularly in the habit of doing. But in other situations, the fruit is just an outburst of, of red-hot anger with somebody or loose language to insult a friend, a brother, a fellow Christian or a co- or colleague. Those of you who are more timid or passive-aggressive, you wouldn't necessarily burst out with it. You'll just seethe with rage under the surface and try and make people's lives really miserable Um, without actually ever confronting them. What, then, is Jesus showing us? He's showing us that the root is the same however it comes out. You think about this. Look at it from this angle. What's the difference between murder and manslaughter? The difference is not the outcome. It's not that a person gets killed It's not even that you did it. The difference is the why. It's what was in the heart. That's what the judge and the jury are trying to ascertain when they're making a call about whether a killing was murder or manslaughter. They're trying to look into a person's heart and say, did you have a hatred toward the other, a motive, a desire to kill? And so if we can draw that distinction out there in terms of actually killing people, then it follows that the motive of the heart, the thing which gives birth to murder, can be something that you have in your heart from time to time toward another. That You occasionally feel rage towards another person. Jealousy and envy. Maybe it comes out in the way you speak to or about them. And what Jesus is saying is, you've already committed murder in your heart. Even if the fruit is lesser, whatever comes out is still designed, still designed to hurt another person and cause harm. And so when we think back about all the ways that we we tend to treat laws, and I'm going through them at the beginning, let's think about it in relation to, to this law, do not murder. We said first of all that we tend to read laws negatively, don't we? So we tend to see them purely in terms of what we should avoid. But I think that when you read the Bible, especially the Ten Commandments correctly, you understand that the law to not murder is meant to be paired so closely with love your neighbor as yourself. That we can't just look at it in terms of a negative to avoid, but rather something that we are compelled to embrace. That to not love another is not just to not hate them, it's not just to be indifferent to them, but it's to actively seek to love people, even if they annoy the hell out of you. That we are called, that's what Jesus wants us to do. So in Ephesians 5, when um, that verse I read to you, be angry and do not sin. He then goes on, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. He says elsewhere in Romans 13, he says, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is what we're supposed to do with with God's law, that it's meant to compel us in a positive direction. Think about this then. We said that we try to find ways around laws. Now, I, I trust that probably none of us have ever genuinely felt that we wanted to kill someone. But who of us has never tried to harm somebody? And if not physically, then who of us hasn't slandered another person, gossiped about them, made a little suggestion to a listening ear that maybe that person isn't to be trusted or that maybe they're not all they cracked up to be. Who of us hasn't willed harm on another person and therefore, in this sense, we we try to circumvent, we try to scoot around the intent of what God wanted us to avoid. We tiptoe to the edge. You can make a person's life very, very miserable we externalize this law above all the laws. We tend to think it's just about my actions. Jesus is showing, no, no, no. It's about your heart. What is the state of your heart? What is going on in your heart? Are there people, are there people in your life that you, you harbor anger against? People maybe who've done you great harm and you know, justice alone would say, well, it's okay to be angry at such and such a person. Are you given to outbursts? Jesus doesn't want you to think that just because you're self-controlled in your actions, that your heart is okay. He wants your heart to feel the full weight and the penetrating power of what he's saying here that you are liable, he says, to judgment. And then think about this last, that we tend to deny laws. Well, how do we deny this law? I don't think your average guy on the street ever wants to deny that murder is wrong. In fact, we so have moved in the other direction in in a country like ours that we're, we're largely pacifistic in our sensibilities. We certainly don't want to even put criminals, heinous criminals, to death. And yet, and yet even in our enlightened age. Isn't it the case that we are killing our own children by the tens of thousands every year? Sure, it may be the case that there's no anger involved in that. But in a way, that's almost worse because it's the cold indifference I don't think that what Jesus was saying to the crowd he spoke to then has any less power or relevance than it does today. I think all of us need to hear what he's saying and understand that God in his holy righteousness looks upon us and he sees us in our heart. He sees us in our true condition to the extent that you don't even know yourself. And how will your heart hold up before the holiness of God? And Jesus wants to force you into a corner. He wants to force you to a place where you recognize that before God you're guilty. He does it with these short parables that he talks about here. If you're offering your gift at the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift and and go. Be reconciled. Then come offer your gift. He's talking to Hypocrites, those of us who think that just because we have this great relationship with God, that all the muck inside our hearts is okay. And he says it's not okay. You need to deal with what's in your heart and then you can come and your sacrifice and your offering will be acceptable to me. And then he, he tells another short story. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll not, never get out until you paid the last penny. He's trying to press on us that there is an urgency to dealing with your, your sin problem. Because in a very real sense, every one of us is walking step by step closer to the courtroom every moment of our lives. Never think, oh, I've got the time to deal with this. Never think, oh, I'll just put it off until tomorrow. Never think, oh, you know what, maybe things won't turn out quite so bad for me. He says, no, you must deal with it right now. You are on your way to court. I think we have to bring it all back around and remember how Jesus began his sermon. This is the key to unlocking all of these, 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 these expositions that he, he gives us about this and that law. Because he began in this way. He said, says he opened his mouth and he began, and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a paradox. That only the bankrupt are rich in God's eyes. And the intent and the purpose of what he's wanting to say to us today is he's wanting to push you into a corner where you can acknowledge honestly before God your utter bankruptcy. Jesus isn't going to leave you there in hopelessness and despair in a few minutes we're going to take communion. And these are the things that I think we should be meditating on as we do it. Think about this, first of all. That when Jesus went to the cross, we're told at the end of Mark's Gospel that he took the place of another man called Barabbas. And Mark tells us that Barabbas was an insurrectionist and a murderer. I don't think it was an accident that such an evil man was picked to be freed so that Jesus would take his cross, the cross that was built for Barabbas. Because Jesus wants you to realize that was your cross and he took it. Meditate also on this. That when Jesus was on the cross and he saw the the baying crowds. And when he heard them cry, crucify him, crucify him, at the release of Barabbas shortly before, he felt the anger and the hatred of mankind. And yet still, his response was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think we're meant to see ourselves in that crowd. I think we're meant to realize that all the anger that was poured out upon Jesus that day encapsulates the murderous intent that lies even in our own hearts and that Jesus still uttered words of forgiveness over you. And think about this also. The way he says here in this parable, truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you paid the last penny. He's saying, look, there's a very real punishment for the sin, the blackness that's in your heart. But Jesus, as he hung on the cross, he felt the full weight of God's just, righteous anger against sin. The full weight of it, so that God's anger was, as it were, bled dry when Jesus bled. So that you would not have to be in prison to pay the last penny because he said, it is finished. He said, I paid it all. Completely. And friends, this all brings us back to the table. When we're hearing Jesus talk about what righteousness is and about the condition, the honest condition of our hearts, Our desire should be a renewed appetite to come back to the table. To eat the bread and to drink the wine that speaks of his freeing power and the fact that he set you free from prison. And he's not just set you free just to wipe the slate clean, he's set you free to make you a new person. So that far from being these angry, murderous people that we once were, that god wants to let you loose into the world to carry the love of god to fulfill the law by embodying the love of christ isn't that an awesome calling it begins here by the way it begins with your with your brothers and sisters in christ in the church but it spins out and overflows in countless directions I don't know how many thousands of people you, us all, will interact with in the course of just this one week that, that we're about to embark on. Every opportunity, an opportunity to, to model the love of Christ. How amazing!